Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, 2023 is underway, and this gang is going to be the year where we build the army to save democracy in 2024. I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up. Gang, I know you're out there. We've recruited 65,000 of your fellow Americans, and I need you to join the ranks today. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ron and Son, senior analyst and commentator at CNBC and a senior advisor at Schroeder's North America. Ron has been a highly respected business journalist and money manager for over three decades. He's written four books on Wall Street and is a sought-after lecturer on domestic and global economics, financial markets, and economic policy issues. Today, he's coming to us from Inglewood, New Jersey. Ron, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Ron, the last time I had you on, we talked for like an hour and somehow cars were weaved in and out of the conversation. <laughs> yes, I happen to be in the midst of leasing new ones right now, so that oh, could come okay, up again. Well, yeah. Maybe it will. We can talk chips and everything else. But today I want to talk to you a little bit about, first and foremost, how you see the world economically. And then I want to get into a couple of other things that we see here on the domestic front, such as the Republicans on the debt ceiling in the House, and then also in the House, this idea of somewhere between a 23 and 30% flat tax that would sort of erase the current tax code. But first things first, you know, Ron, where are we economically? Is inflation up? Is it down? Are we going to have a recession? What's happening? Yes. <laughs> inflation is coming down and for a wide variety of reasons. I mean, number one, the supply chain, which was disrupted by the pandemic and caused manufacturers to shut down and not produce a lot of things and create shortages of manufactured goods. That has in some ways worked its way through the system and we're almost back to normal. If you look at the amount of imports coming to the United States, those are back up. If you look at production of, of a wide variety of goods and, and even some services, we're close to normal levels as the pandemic has begun to wane, certainly in the West, not so much in China. And we're also seeing that, broadly speaking, the economy in that regard is normalizing. Now, having said that, the Federal Reserve at the same time, fearing that the economy has overheated in the short run, has been raising interest rates more aggressively than at any time in modern history and raising the risk of a recession. And that's true around the world. We have central banks all over the planet raising rates and trying to cool what they believe to be is an overheated economy. I, I take great exception to what's going on with central banks right now, but we're normalizing in a lot of ways, and yet there's still some work to be done. I mean, manufacturing has come back to an extent. We've seen the service sector of the economy rebound, but we also still see both some weak spots in residential real estate and commercial real estate, and we see some weak spots that are developing over time in other areas of the economy. I mean, wouldn't you expect that there'd be soft spots in residential and commercial real estate, given the fact that two years ago you could refinance if you had good credit at, you know, sub 3%, and now you'd be lucky to get a, a loan at, what, six and a half or seven? Yeah, we're at about six one on a conventional 30-year fixed mortgage, which is down from where it was, but still more than double the cost of money just two years ago. And so housing affordability has changed rather dramatically. And in fact, when you look at the data, Reed, I mean, housing is effectively out of reach for a lot of people, given that the monthly mortgage payment has gone up something on the neighborhood of 40%. And so residential real estate in particular is in recession. Some of the worst numbers we've seen since the early 80s when rates were even considerably higher. And commercial real estate is struggling. We've seen cities like San Francisco really take a hard hit. And we've seen you know technology companies begin to cut staff. And so that's the bedrock of the economy. And so you typically don't avoid a recession if real estate has rolled over. And so my guess is that sometime in the next three to six months, we'll start to see negative prints on growth here in the United States. Whether it's mild, moderate, or severe, I think depends on how aggressive the Federal Reserve remains and does it insist on raising rates 
because the labor market's tight, which again, for other reasons, away from a kind of a traditional overheating cycle, the labor market's tight because we're short people, not because the economy is so strong that we've just simply run out of folks to fill the number of jobs that are open. I am McCain-esque in my knowledge of the economy and how it actually works. (laughs) And I say that as a proud McCain veteran. Why is it bad when wages are going up? It would seem to be good for people. It's not. So what everybody, I think, errantly is worried about today is the analog to the 1970s and early 80s, the so-called wage price spiral. Insofar as as prices go up because of a lack of availability of certain goods, then wages have to follow suit. And it becomes a spiral where it continues to feed on itself going higher. We've basically, in some instances, broken the back of prices. Wages are going up because we are short workers. There still is nearly two available jobs for every unemployed worker. And so we are short people. In fact, I'm publishing a piece on CNBC.com today about this very issue because there is this concern about wage inflation. Well, first of all, we're catching up after 20 years of labor falling behind capital in terms of the gains made. And we have about 5 million unemployed, but we have about 10 million open positions. Now, that's the result of the COVID lockdowns that have prevented people coming into the United States, immigration constraints, a falling birth rate. We have, at this juncture, we are simply not producing enough kids. The population replacement rate should be 2.1 children per couple. We're at 1.6 one of the lowest levels ever. Look, we're just short people. So you're seeing some wage inflation as companies battle to get skilled and unskilled labor into the workforce. And we ain't got, I mean, we should be, and, I, and this is a very controversial thing in our world today, we should be basically opening the doors to immigrants at every skill level in order to flood the labor market with new entrants. That would be critical. And I want to get to that in a second. I want to talk about sort of this generational shift too. But on the population piece, I read something, was it earlier this week or late last week, Ron, that China for the first time maybe ever had a reduction in its population. Now it was roughly a million people out of 1.4 billion. Is that the kind of thing, one, that causes a systemic problem in a place like China? And two, does that accelerate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the demographics of China, where the one-child policy was in place for so long, And now they've expanded it to three children, and no one in China wants three children. And even that's a 20-year process to restore the population to some level of normality. And they're heavy on men too, right? They're very heavy on men, very well, because they used to kill female babies at birth, right, in the hinterlands of China. And so what you see now is, I think it's in the next five to 10 years, India will overtake China as the most populous nation in the world. And China could go into secular population decline because of these policies that were in place since Mao. And this is brutal. China's short women, they are short working age people. This could lead to a secular decline, stagnation. We've seen this in Japan as well. Just tell our listeners, what is a secular decline? A secular decline means a long-term decline. It's not cyclical where it can resolve itself in a short period. This is a long-term, potentially permanent decline. You've seen this in Japan as well, where you have as many centenarians as you have births, if not more. And that's just an upside down problem. And you basically become a self-liquidating population if you don't do something about it. And a lot of Asian countries are not keen on the idea of immigration. Right. And I mean, it's always been a fairly closed part of the world to outsiders. Absolutely. And that's a big problem where we were not, but we've become that. And that's representing a serious problem for our labor force. I mean, we we are short people in each category, whether it's low-skilled, medium-skilled, or high-skilled workers. You know, just to give you an idea of the H-1B visa program, which is for highly skilled workers, we have, I believe, only, I think it's 85,000 available slots, but there are 500,000 applicants, some number like that. We can use all those people. We actually need to effectively, and this will drive some people crazy, we effectively need to open the borders and let a flood of people in because our birth rate is not, like I say, it's 1.6 children per couple below population replacement rate. We need skilled labor. We need unskilled labor. If you look in California, where they don't necessarily even have enough farmhands to maintain agricultural output, these are critical issues and they're being dealt with in the most xenophobic of ways. Well, because that's the whole point though, because it's not an economic argument. It's a political, it's not even a political argument. It's an ideological argument. Yeah. And look, you know, so my grandparents came over in the early 1900s from Italy, right? When we had a wave of Italians, Polish, Jews, and others who, who would come here. And of course, you know, we had the same argument then. We've had the same argument really since the Irish started coming over during the Boss Tweed era. 
if you're a fan of Gangs of New York, you know, as a film, we've had that problem forever. And yet somehow we've managed to allow people to keep coming and replenish our population. Population growth is incredibly important to economic growth. Matty Iglesias, who at times I disagree with, he's, you know, he's more of a far left commentator, but he wrote a book called A Billion Americans. If you really want dynamism in your economy, you simply need more people. It's very simple. It's labor force growth plus productivity growth equals economic growth. You need those things. Let me ask you, Ron, if the flood of immigrants was not coming from Central and South America, but from England and France and Germany and Italy, do you think they'd be okay with it? They weren't when that was happening. Yeah, now, absolutely. I mean, and, and look, there are some groups that are seemingly more acceptable than others. When you see Asian immigrants, people don't really make too much of a big deal out of it. They're well-educated, they're coming. Every time you want to attack an ethnic group for coming to the United States, you're making the case that they are, and I've read a lot about this, subhuman, unintelligent, wards of the state. There was a gentleman by the name of Francis A. Walker, who in the late 1800s made the case for not letting Italians, Germans, Poles, and others in because they were effectively subhuman, and they would just infect the population as it existed then. We're making the same argument now about you know Hispanics and others. And look, this is a very dangerous thing because you're objectifying those people. And I remember Ken Burns did a documentary on Vietnam several years ago, and there was this amazing gentleman who was in the Marine Corps. I think he was from St. Louis. And somebody in the, I don't know if it was the producers or somebody, he was relating a story. How many Vietnamese did I kill? I killed one Vietnamese. He's like, but I killed a dozen. And then he went through the list of Vietnamese racial epithets. He said, because see what you do is you take the person, the subject, and you make them an object. And now you're not killing a person, you're killing a thing. And that's, I think, where the slippery slope on this stuff is, is that whether or not it's immigrants from Central and South America, people here, right? Don't let them come to your neighborhoods, right? It's, to your point, it's xenophobic, but it's also very dangerous because now you get a situation where a guy walks into a grocery store in Buffalo and shoots 10 people because he's convinced that the great replacement theory but I also want to talk about the immigration issue, Ron, because, you know, President Biden went down to the border recently and I was doing another podcast and I think the host asked me, like, what do you think? And I said, well, yes, there is the tactical issue. And I don't mean to objectify the people going through it at the border of people coming across the border patrol, local communities. I said, but there's also the macro issue of the places these folks are coming from are inherently dangerous places to live, right? They're controlled by gangs. They're controlled by, you know, the Sandinistas, for Christ's sakes, in Nicaragua. But like there is no possible way for these people to try and have any regular life because their regular life, it's arbitrary, right? One day you could be fine and the next day you could get shot walking down the street. And look, setting aside issues around the indigenous population of the United States, Everyone has come for a specific reason, which is in search of a better existence. So whether it was the early English settlers, the Dutch, in the 1800s, you had the Chinese, then you had my people, the Italians and the Poles and others, for whatever reason. Right. Look, my family came from, it could be Lithuania, it could be Belarus, it could be Ukraine. I'm not sure where in the diaspora they came from, but it was the same idea. They were sick of getting beat up by Cossacks. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and, and you know, my grandparents came just for better opportunity. And, you know, my mom's father, who operated an Italian language newspaper in Niagara Falls with a partner, ultimately in the Depression, lost it to his partner and worked as a line of type operator for the rest of his life, still was a, a cultured man. My grandmother on my dad's side never learned to read or write, but you know, was also a contributor to what we'd built in this country and built out families of size who assimilated as they do. Everybody keeps forgetting that every group has assimilated in the United States. The Irish you know, the Italians, the Poles, Jews, anybody who has come here has really become an integral part of the fabric, has made the country's economy more dynamic. And that continues. It is just these moments where, and we've seen them time and time again across our history, that for whatever reason, blaming the other becomes the dominant theme around immigration. And the folks, we need more people. It is just flat out. Our birth rate's too low. We lost people during the pandemic. 500,000 people of working age died during the pandemic. And, and, and Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, talked about this. We are short individuals. We have more open jobs than we have available workers in the United States. So unless people can pop out 22-year-olds at birth, which is not possible, you have to bring in and import that labor force. I'm sure in Silicon Valley they're trying to figure <laughs> I'm it I'm sure out. they are, yeah. But what you're seeing is robotics. You're seeing a whole host of technology solutions to make up for the shortage in labor. 
that is going to have a distinct impact on opportunity going forward. Well, sure. I mean, how many grocery stores do you walk into now? And, you know, the, at least half the person run check stands are closed all the time. And then they have the, you know, the self checkout thing. Well, and when you look at fast food and, you know, quick service restaurants and things like that, you're now starting to see almost full automation where there are only people in the kitchen. So you walk in, you plug in your order into a machine. There's a conveyor belt that brings you your hamburger and fries. And either you get that in the drive-thru or you get that by walking in and you never see a person. There's an experimental restaurant in Texas going through that right now. Uh, Taco Bell's trying some similar things. There are a whole host of different businesses that are eliminating those jobs, which are great jobs for teenagers and others who are entering the labor force. And they're going to be automated away because we're not growing the population as quickly as we need to. Let's talk about the generational piece for a second. So you mentioned commercial real estate. You know, we have, I don't know, probably six, eight, ten folks who are millennial or younger. I mean, we're a remote organization, but we have been since the get-go, just based on the necessity of it, where everybody lives, and then COVID. But I would venture to say that if I told most of those people, okay, you have to move to City A and work in Building 1 from 8.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. five days a week, they'd say, you know, go fly a kite. So how does the individual that then becomes the mass affect something like commercial real estate where you got empty buildings all over the place? Yeah, and they're going to all have to be repurposed for other uses. And that's being thought through, but not well yet. I mean, you know, you see that a lot of companies are going to three-day work weeks and Mondays and Fridays, you don't have to go into the office. So you're getting this, particularly like ground floor space in Times Square in New York is wide open. I mean, it's crazy just how much space is available here in San Francisco, in other tech hubs where you can work remotely. Now, there is a question, though, about whether or not, from a social perspective, younger workers in particular will miss that integration. Listen, if I never went back into an office at nearly age 62, I, mean, I could kind of care less, right? I mean, I've done this for 30 some odd years, almost 40 years. And so I've been as integrated as I need to be, and I can do a lot of remote work. But kids who want to or need to be exposed to a culture, who need mentorship, who need to understand process, kind of need to be in the, in the office. And we are seeing a rebellion against that idea. The other part too is that a lot of the folks we're talking about are native to the digital landscape, which is when you and I were coming up, if you lived by yourself in an apartment, you had a television, maybe you had a phone on the wall, but like it was a lonely place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You're just sitting there, you know, sitting there with your dog eating mac and cheese, you know, ironing your shirts for the next day. <laughs> and like that was it. Right now, of course, you might go have a beer, you might have a date, whatever it is. But the truth was, is that now if you're 24, you can get up, look at your phone, be in constant contact with all of your friends, be in constant contact with your workplace, do all of that stuff and, you know, never leave the comfort of your couch or your bedroom or whatever it is. So that sort of inherent need to get the hell out of your apartment or your house, it would still be for me because I find, you know, digital communication is fine, but it's not the real thing. No. And look, so I have three kids, two of whom are in that space, right? One's in her twenties about to get engaged. She works in the office three days a week, but doesn't really have to. And so Mondays and Fridays are not in the office. The interaction is different than what we grew up with, where it used to be five days, 10 hours a day, and you were going full bore. And you did create a work culture, which I think is going to ultimately be sacrificed. But the flip side is that some of what we did was absolutely unnecessary too. I mean, sometimes we were there too long. There was too much in the way of politics. And a lot of that was the familiarity breeding contempt component of, of the workplace. But having said that, younger people need to be socialized in the workplace to understand, one, the rules of the road, how they can get mentored, how they can be taught around a veteran, around someone with serious experience that can be additive to their process. That's very hard to do from home. There is also, I think, a necessary thing to have to work around people you absolutely cannot stand. <laughs> yeah, we've all done it. <laughs> Which, yeah. like, I don't mean to make light of it, but the truth is, is that, you know, we are human beings. We are fully formed individuals. And you get around somebody and you, you take one look at each other and you've never met maybe. And you just decide, I can't stand that person. But at the end of the day, you got to be a grown up and you got to go to work every yeah. day. And you can't set that person on fire in the office. You just have to you have to figure out the work relationship as best you can to remain productive in your capacity. And look, part of that socialization then also bleeds over into your personal life as well. You need these multifaceted you know, relationships to be a fully functioning human, right? Look, I met my wife. I mean, Ron, just to be a little personal here, I picked my wife up at the Waco airport in Texas in 2002, 
because I was at the White House at the time, we were doing an Easter trip to George W. Bush's ranch in Crawford, Texas. If she had not come in to be on the advance team, we never would have met. Yeah. Listen, I'll go you one better. When I started my first day at CNBC, 1991, I believe it was, I walked in. My wife was an intern on the floor at CNBC, went back to college, came back to CNBC. We were both dating different people at the time, both broke up at the same time, got together, got married, had three children. And it was what it was, right? I mean, that was the, the socialization part of that workplace function was extremely important. There were a lot of young people at CNBC at the time, and a lot of people got married and a lot of social functions took place. And look, it's additive ultimately to your life to be exposed to a wide variety of points of view, even if you don't agree with everybody. And sometimes even if you're in the midst of a life or death political struggle at work, it is what it is. It teaches you how, you know, the rules of the road. You got to learn all that stuff. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this also goes to the point, though, which is, you know, we were at a wedding this past summer and the bride and groom, actually two weddings last year, bride and grooms, both about 30. I think I got married probably around then. But, you know, I went to college in Texas where, you know, half the guys I knew, gals I knew got married as soon as we got out of school, right at 22, probably the last generation of that. But, you know, also it feels a little bit like, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, it feels like sort of that level of adulthood, for a way to speak about it, doesn't really begin until 30, which also says you're less likely to have five kids. And that, you know, also the one thing I found in those weddings was that each of the couples, the two couples had written their own vows and it was about supporting what the other person wanted to do. It was very about we're together, but we're individuals which I thought was fascinating as I'm sitting there, you know, as a guest. Also, just as an aside, Ron, when you suddenly become closer to the bride and groom's parents than you to, to the bride and groom, right? That's a shift in life um, that I, I <laughs> yeah. did not expect to have happen twice in one year, but it did. But I think it also speaks to what you're talking about as far as the kinds of jobs we need, the lack of new people that we have. It all sort of works together. We're literally short people in the United States. And Look, I mean, I wouldn't advocate for everybody to go out and have six kids like it's 1900. You know, it's an expensive proposition these days. But I think at the end of the day, our population has to be replenished, as it always has been, through immigration in addition to domestic family formation. And I think it is a critical question. And our elected representatives right now are absolutely on the wrong side of this argument. I mean, they are not letting people in. And we need low skill, medium skill, and highly skilled workers. And so, it's been part and parcel, really, of our history that we go through these waves where it's okay for them to come and then it's not okay for them to come. There's such a schizophrenia about this when the country itself, as we've long said, is a melting pot that we're still debating who should be allowed to come. It's just an insane proposition if you want the nation to grow and thrive. So speaking of elected officials being on the absolute wrong side of an argument. So, Ron, this week, I don't know if they've actually introduced the bill, but it was announced that the Republican House conference was going to introduce a bill that would basically scrap the current tax code in favor of now some people said 23 percent. Other people said 30 percent flat tax, which is something that like, I, I don't know if Steve Forbes is still alive. I he, hope is. he is. He is. Okay. Then he must just be beyond happy because this is something that he was all about in like the 2000 New Hampshire presidential campaign. But it seems to be incredibly regressive. You noted on Twitter, I thought it was funny. We'll also put a lot of, if it were to happen, which it won't, a lot of lobbyists out of business, so they'll be sure to kill it. But it also, I think, speaks to this idea, Ron, that there seems to be, at least within the Republican Party, a real desire for, again, ideological arguments that fundamentally benefit the wealthy at the expense of, frankly, their own voters. Yeah. And this is not the flat tax in the way Steve Forbes conceived of it, right? Or, or others who were proponents of that back in the day. This is more like a consumption tax, which, you know, would disproportionately hit middle income and lower income workers and people with money, by the way, who will still have plenty of loophole options available to you. I, I can't tell you how many different structures I know of, having been in the finance world for most of my life, that can allow wealthy people to avoid paying any taxes at all, ever, again, for the rest of their lives. And quite frankly, they could get generation skipping breaks as well. And so this would fall disproportionately on middle income and lower income individuals who, you know, while doing a little better in the post-pandemic environment, are not doing well enough that they could bear the burden of something like this. This would just crush uh, the middle class. No, I mean, wouldn't it basically create a permanent like caste system? Yeah, 
in which wherever you were born was where you were going to stay. Your kids weren't going to do better than you. And everybody was just going to sort of resolve that that was their life until something really bad happens, like the torches and the pitchforks come out (laughs) because the powers that be ignore the masses for too long, which is not an unrealistic expectation given what history's shown us. Yeah, you go back to no taxation without representation or any other, you know, number of revolts that were based right. on the French Revolution, yeah. yeah. Disproportionately yeah. burdening the middle and lower classes while the rich, you know, are eating cake as rich. it were. You know, and right. rich. Yeah. And and have everything at their disposal, you know, in order to avoid even paying the taxes that are supposed to be levied upon them. So I could see a flat tax if it were uniform, if it were across the board, if you kept your mortgage interest deduction and a couple of other benefits that would help lower and middle income people. But to really put this consumption tax on or create a tax that disproportionately affects the middle class and the poor is just another extremely cynical ploy to gain votes among a certain subset of the population. And I just think this is really ill-conceived. I could see a lot of area of improvement for the tax code this ain't it. And let me just say this. I mean, you, you mentioned like the mortgage deduction. Like if you're in that class, you don't have a mortgage. Right. right? right you're absolutely, probably struggling yeah. to pay the rent and you will struggle to pay the rent even more. Even more. Yeah. Like it's a totally regressive tax. And the tax system, at least philosophically for most of us, should be somewhat more progressive than regressive, right? The wealthy have all kinds of benefits at their disposal. And listen, I could design sitting here right now a program I could describe to you in which the wealthy would never pay another dime in taxes if they used one, two, or three different vehicles. And I'm sure they have. And they have. And we've seen it a lot. And it is what it is, except it shouldn't exist. And corporations pay far less than they used to as a share of the total tax revenues going to the United States government. We're at an all-time low relative to their contributions. And so again, all these burdens fall disproportionately on people who can least afford them. And it's just horrible tax policy. And it really doesn't allow for each generation to build upon the wealth that was created prior and have a higher standard of living going forward. Right. Well, and again, this is where you think back to 2015 and 2016, Ron. I remember once sitting in my car listening to a Bernie Sanders speech, not watching it, but listening to it. And if you had compared what Bernie Sanders was saying to what Donald Trump was saying, you know, with the exception of the explicit racism and misogyny and everything else, <laughs> yeah. there wasn't a lot of daylight. And the truth was, is that what they were saying, as much as I certainly loathe Donald Trump and think he's a danger to the republic and oftentimes don't agree with Bernie Sanders on much of anything, they were telling the little guy you're getting screwed. And I don't think they were wrong. No, they're not wrong. And, and look, I mean, it has ever been thus, right? I mean, it's not like there's really no period in history where the little guy didn't get screwed. If you were a peasant in the Middle Ages, you were lucky to make it to, you know, 20. And if, you know, coming forward in the industrial age, you were more likely to die of some sort of accident at a factory than you were to get a nice office, you know, cushy office job. And today, once again, you are disadvantaged at the lower end of the poverty scale. Now, that has improved, I should say, in the United States. The number of people in abject poverty has improved dramatically because of social programs that exist. But the last thing you want to do is tax these people into oblivion where they don't have the ability to climb out. I mean, there was an economist, Thorsten Veblen, who talked about, you know, never being able to go up the escalator, you know, coming from the bottom. You can reach a certain point and there's a good chance that you're going to get knocked right back down. And that's a problem that we're dealing with today. And and look, people are, are freaking out about higher wages. We are playing catch up on the wage front. We don't have wage inflation in the sense that it is so out of control, particularly since costs have actually begun to fall again and inflation has begun to roll over. So the fact that people are being compensated for the work that they're doing, and look, this is not full-scale unionization. This is not the 1970s. You're not getting automatic escalators every time the CPI goes up X amount of, of a percent. People are starting to do better and they should let the bottom and the middle do better because it makes for a much more robust and much more cohesive society, ultimately. Right. Because, yeah, otherwise you have a simmering and then boiling resentment that ultimately, you know, flows over the pot. And permanent underclass. And we know how that's played out. Look at any country in history, France, Russia, you pick it, Italy, it doesn't really matter. They all respond the same way. All right. So as we speak, the United States government has reached, as I understand it, its debt limit. So the debt limit, as I understand, Ron, is the amount of money that the Treasury is legally allowed to borrow to fund government operations. Is that right? Correct. Existing, already appropriated programs. Okay. So these are already charges on the credit card. Correct. Now, we have this fight every so often, and I'm not entirely sure why we have it, 
I mean, it seems to me to be a political maneuver because, again, as we talked about before we went on, like the dollar is the world's reserve currency. If we don't screw it up, it will continue to be the world's reserve currency. But now, again, not an economic argument, not even a political argument, but an ideological argument that, no, you know, we're not going to spend one more dime on the debt until we cut the spending. Now, the spending that Republicans are talking about, they're all over the place because Kevin McCarthy and his ilk have gotten themselves in a hole that they dug, right, with the shovels owned by the MAGA people, that, you know, you're going to have to cut into entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, and the like, because they take up so much of government spending. They've even talked about cutting $75 billion out of American defense spending. But let's talk about what it means for the United States to default on its debt. Now, I understand that, you know, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary and the Treasury Department can play lots of shell games, right? Pay this, pay that, pay this, pay that. But at the end of the day, like we got to pay the interest on the debt. So how does this happen? And what happens if the Republicans decide like we're going Thelma and Louise here? Well, listen, if you're going Thelma and Louise, you have a financial market crisis that turns into an economic crisis. The dollar would crash in value. Interest rates presumably would skyrocket and you would be unable to borrow more money even if you wanted to, or you would do so at very punitive rates, which would then cost the government even more. And then that in and of itself would create a recession because rates would go up, things would become increasingly less affordable, and then you go into a bit of a tailspin. And we've seen this in third world nations, right? We are not a third world nation. We have the reserve currency not of yet. the world, not yet. And it's absurd because the debt ceiling as it stands right now is in place only for political reasons. It has no real use case. During Donald Trump's presidency, it was raised three times even before we started pandemic spending without a word. No one said anything. And the last time we went through this was in the early 2000s, and our debt got downgraded in terms of its quality, which is something you don't want to see. It, it happily did not have the type of negative consequences that one would assume would go along with a debt downgrade. We actually survived it reasonably well. But if you go to that illogical extreme where we defaulted on our national debt, you become a horrible debtor. You become an unworthy credit, and people are loath to lend you money. But we run deficits in the trillions of dollars every year. So unless we had surpluses sitting around and we could finance all this stuff you know, on our own, it would be one thing. It would be a tragedy, and it would be economic catastrophe if we played around with this in such a way that we actually defaulted on our external debt. That is something that first world countries simply don't do. Well, a couple of things. One is that Republicans during the Trump administration not only raised the debt limit, but remember also, as you noted earlier, gave massive tax cuts to the wealthy and to corporations, which reduces government revenue, which increases the deficit, right? I think it's interesting, Ron, that, you know, Democrats have always been tax and spend Democrats. Yeah, at least presumably. That wasn't true in the Clinton years, quite frankly. Right. But we also didn't have, like, I think we ran a surplus at one point. At the very end of his right? term, yeah. And we also had the so-called peace dividend because defense spending fell in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But Republicans are don't tax and spend. So they're basically running around with Matt Gates's dad's black Amex spending at the bar on bottle service, they don't care any more than anybody else does, but they're willing to do this because so much of the caucus, and I always say this, 132 members of 222 members of the House Republican Conference voted not to certify the 2020 election. Why do I harp on that, Ron? Why do I harp on that to the folks listening? Because they are an anti-democratic force and they are a chaotic force by nature. They don't care. This is what they like. Right. Because it fundamentally, Ron, as you talked about, reduces the stability of American institutions. It also goes back to your point about hurting the lower class, right, with jacked interest rates and everything else. But when McCarthy finally got elected speaker, I said to the guys here, I said, you know what, what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start DMing D.C. based reporters on Twitter and say, hey, are you going to call the bankers? You're going to call the chamber? You're going to call the credit unions? You're going to call these guys and say, what are they going to do if we default? And out of the 10, let's say that I sent seven were like, hey, that's a really good question. And I'm like, why, Ron, can't people believe the crazy? We've been dealing with the crazy for nearly a decade now. And once again, you know, there was a New York Times article. Wall Street and D.C. only have rough plans to deal with a debt default. Like, why won't they believe that the insanity is before us? I don't get it. Well, I think the fact that we've never defaulted and the fact that we've not except for, you know, the early 2000s, you know, contemplated even risking 
a technical default on our external debt has lulled people into a sense of complacency that probably at this juncture shouldn't persist because I think there are some agents of chaos, and I don't mean that in the get smart sense. I think there are some true agents of chaos out there who would like to see us default on the debt, who think irrationally that that would somehow force the government to rein in spending. Discretionary spending by the U.S. government is a very small piece of what we spend money on. We're spending you know, nearly a trillion dollars on defense, and justifiably so with what's going on in Ukraine. Right? We know what we need to do there. We spend an extraordinary amount of money on programs that people have paid into, Medicare and Social Security, and they become inviolate, as they should be, because people will depend on that later in life. Discretionary spending is an extremely small piece of the federal budget. So what they're talking about, what implicitly is being discussed here, is shrinking Medicare and Social Security and breaking that compact. That is a recipe for disaster, both socially and economically. I don't understand the crazy around this because you are playing with fire here. A debt default for the largest nation in the world would have catastrophic consequences. And don't forget, the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world is more heavily indebted than we are. If we go, they go. Which is what we saw in 2008, 2009, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you saw it again, you know, I think in 2011, where, you know, Europe had a debt crisis. We were also messing around with the debt limits and things like that. And you can create a catastrophic environment by playing with this fire. And it's not humorous. It's not funny. It's not philosophical. It's pure crazy. Defaulting on the national debt when you are the most creditworthy country on the face of the planet is a disaster in the making. And it's something we should never toy with. Quite frankly, like many other countries, we should get rid of the artifice that is the debt ceiling limit right? We're going to spend the money anyway. And you can go back to the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which was truly brilliant and looked at ways to reorder spending, reprioritize how we engage in the budget, audit the budget on a more frequent basis to make sure, although this is difficult, that we get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse. It's kind of an old saw. But you know, there are ways to responsibly put together a budget and meet the needs of the country, but really kind of cut back on some things that are frivolous. We don't have that much wiggle room, but we have enough to kind of start to right the ship. Having said that, what's fascinating to me is even though we are heavily indebted, we are in much better shape than the entire rest of the world. If you look at China's debt to GDP ratio, it's 300%. You look at Italy, you look at Spain, you look at Portugal, you still look at Greece, too small to matter, but can trigger something. We're in good shape. It takes some responsible stewardship to ensure that we keep that pole position that we stay the most creditworthy nation, that our currency is more valuable than others, and that the bonds that we sell are worthy of others buying them to finance our deficits. And that's a very big deal. And I think they are playing with fire here in ways that they have not yet begun to realize. All right. Well, so Ron, as we close here, I want to talk about something that involves both playing with fire and a lack of responsible stewardship. So before you and I started talking, we were talking about Elon Musk, Twitter, you know, everything else. But my question to you was, if you know that Elon Musk is a wild card, to say the least, right, that he's a South African kid who came over with pockets full of emeralds, right? So like he's he's always been spending somebody else's money. Why, if you were a major venture capital fund, why, if you were a major Wall Street bank or if you were the Saudis or the Emiratis, why would you give someone like him forty four billion dollars? Because he makes money for people at times. Right. I mean, listen, until this you know whole Twitter thing collapsed the value of his personal holdings. Like he had done some pretty amazing things, even though he is not the inventor of the Tesla, nor was he among its first executives. He bought it and he built it out to something that, you know, 10% of all cars sold these days are electric and started a revolution that, you know, may well be a necessary one as far as, you know, environmental concerns. There are other companies he's been involved with, including SpaceX, which do things that the government used to do, but he does them better than they do now. So on the one hand, he's a genius. On the other hand, Look, he's a little unmoored. I think we know that, right? I mean, and they oftentimes go hand in hand. I think when you get into a situation, and this is true of Rupert Murdoch or a handful of other people who have gained control of media outlets over time, it becomes an ego-driven process that has no rules. That's what we have to worry about because at that point, when you start taking off some of the limits that were imposed on, let's say, Twitter users, which were important and tried to keep the national dialogue that now takes place on that service within a framework 
that is logical and not insane. He's taking the guardrails back off. The conversations start to get crazier and crazier, and it just breeds worse and worse behavior. So look, I mean, on the one hand, is Elon a genius? Probably. On the other hand, is he a little dangerous at this juncture? Yeah, probably that too. Well, I want to ask two different questions. One is on the genius front. Is someone by definition who has achieved a net worth of $1 billion, which is a lot of money, even today, a lot of money, a genius? No. I know a lot of idiots who are worth a lot of money. You could fall into something you know, very well. You could be <laughs> a member of the Lucky Progeny Club, and that's a polite way of describing what sure. we usually say it. Born on third base, thought they hit a triple. Yeah, right. there's that. But there are people who legitimately are geniuses who did something that other people couldn't do. I mean, I'd throw Bill Gates in there. I'd throw a whole host of people in there who have created businesses that other people simply couldn't create. Elon Musk is a weird kind of hybrid. He came into existing businesses, built them out, and made them bigger than they might otherwise have been. But also, you know, I think in, in many of these cases, when you look at a lot of these individuals, their social philosophies might be a little bit off. Their point of view with respect to kind of normal human behavior leaves something to be desired. And then there are people who are just plain greedy who don't really care about the rules of the road and just want to make as much money as is humanly possible. So just having money doesn't guarantee that you're smart or willing to do something that's good for society. But I think there's also the part that you talk about, which is, you know, whether or not it's Murdoch, who seems to fit into all of the things you described, or Musk, which is, I think I said before we started, it's like that Peter Gabriel song, right? Like, you know, Adolf starts a bonfire, Enrico plays with it. Like, they see something sort of potentially dangerous, and rather than figuring out how to put it out, they want to pour gasoline on it. Yeah. And look, there's always been the bomb-throwing Bolshevik, right? I mean, that's part and parcel of both life and business. And we've seen people who cannot do anything but the wrong thing. Sam Bankman-Fried, right? I mean, here's a guy who's playing in this alternative financial universe, and he ends up blowing things up. And at one point, he's hailed as a genius. The next minute, he's on his way to jail. I mean, they're always bad actors, and that does not apply to everybody who's wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. There are people who have built great businesses, have employed a lot of individuals, or have been great investors and just are smart. But I think we have to guard against the notion that everyone who's got money should be on a pedestal. I've run around with a lot of these people over the course of the last almost 40 years. Some are really interesting. Some are really smart. Some are really well-intentioned. I mean, I, I happen to like Warren Buffett a great deal. I think he's actually a very interesting human being with, I would argue, very few black marks on his record. And, you know, listen, you can argue about Bill Gates and whether or not you thought he was a monopolist or what have you, but he's done some good things over the course of his life. And, and, and he's built out a fabulous business that has put a lot of people to work. And I would say that as much as Steve Jobs was a quirky character and maybe not the most, God rest his soul, likable individual on the planet, he was also brilliant and did things that revolutionized the way you and I live. So, you know, you can't cast a pall on everybody who's got money, but you can become more and more discerning about what those people with enormous amounts of money do. And there should be some price to pay for becoming a chaos agent, as opposed to somebody, at the very least, trying to do something good for society while making a lot of money, because in our country, that's one of our goals. Right. And, and again, you know, I'm a, I'm a happy capitalist, but also, you know, maybe we're as close to unfettered capitalism as we've seen, Ron, because, you know, I mean, think about it. A hundred and some years ago, Teddy Roosevelt, Republican, was a trust buster. He knew big was bad. And now big is big. And it's so big and so interconnected that there is no space for anybody else. I mean, technology is commoditized basically now. Right. But the big was bad thing had as its underpinning the notion of monopoly pricing power, right? That was what trust busters like Teddy Roosevelt were concerned about. If you had a monopoly, you could raise prices to exorbitant levels and people would be at your mercy. The flip side has happened in this technology revolution, which is the costs have actually come down by and large. Market share has gone up. Control has gone up. But there's also an inherent power. Correct. Right? Absolutely. And that's why when you look at all the trust regulations, it's all about money. That's why, like, you know, the government would be nice if they tried to get out of, like, the MS-DOS era <laughs> of not only their computers, probably, but yeah. also their thinking, which is, like, you can have a monopoly that does not solely reside on the idea that, like, you know, standard oil can jack the price of a gallon of gasoline. Right. It's more about control and being a dominant player like Apple or being a dominant player like Microsoft or others who have built out ecosystems that are so self-contained and so self-reliant that you have virtually no choice but to go to those places for you know, products and services. 
And that in and of itself describes a monopoly irrespective of price. They may not have monopoly pricing power, but they have monopoly control of a specific industry. And that's something we need to rethink. Although, given the cost of investing in these new technologies, it's hard to see a multiplicity of companies coming into a space and driving down prices and increasing access at the same time. It's gotten harder to do that over time. But we're also going to see, I think, in the next many years, a proliferation of new industries and businesses that will be beneficial to the consumer from a healthcare perspective, from a technology perspective. Automobiles are, are going to change radically over the next many years. And we'll see another wave of innovation once we get through this rough patch that would probably help to reinvigorate the economy. Having said that, we also need enlightened policies from the government that create rules of the road that make the environment that much more fair for people who are trying to break in and move up. And just on that point, I remember summer of 21, I was in Washington, D.C. with my daughter and we were at a friend's house or something. And there were some people there and it was a guy I'd done some work with, which is very D.C. Oh, yeah. you know, And he's like, oh, yeah, this guy he works for this big thing. And I'm like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And he's like, man, the Biden administration's crazy. I'm like, why? Well, you know, they're going to regulate so and so. I'm like, you guys haven't had a new regulation in like 25 years. Like, what are you worried about? Well, this is just catastrophic. Like, it is not catastrophic. You've been able to eat all the fried chicken you wanted to. You haven't gotten fat. And now somebody's like, by the way, we don't think you should do that anymore. And now it's the end of the world. Right. Well, he hasn't gotten fat, but the rest of the world's, everybody else's arteries are clogged. Right. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> right. that's the problem. And look, you know, Joe Biden's an interesting character to me. He has gotten an extraordinary amount done in two years. I mean, when you look at what's happened with a wide variety of acts, including bringing home industries that are critical to the future of the United States, where we're competing head to head with China. Those various acts have been extremely beneficial. And yeah, look, he's going to face a recession. He's going to have a tough time over the next couple of years. But I would argue that most of what's transpired really in the first two years of, of his administration are far more centrist than they are leftist. And that the net benefit will accrue to the US economy over time. Now, there are other issues we'll see going forward, you know, whether or not this battle now between Republicans and Democrats will either force us into a period of stasis where for the next two years, we simply don't do anything. Not always the worst scenario for an economy and a government, but there are some big battles to come. And it is time, quite frankly, I think, for that generation to pass the baton. And we do need some new blood and we do need some new ideas. I think he's been a good steward of what he inherited. And I covered Donald Trump way back when, and I am not, and nor have I ever really been, except in our first few interactions a fan. And so I would love to see someone else on the Republican side who's more responsible and who has certainly less baggage, to put it mildly, than Donald Trump. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But I think that to the extent that we can, and again, this is becoming increasingly difficult in politics, finding qualified, well-intentioned people in this environment has become more difficult at any time in my 61 plus years. I think that's right. You know, and, and I think that's a problem. And look, we need to do something quickly, I think, to right the ship. And I think we need, if possible, some well-intentioned leaders who can recognize the issues that we have, recognize the global challenges that we face, and even the economic challenges that are right before us, and do something smart. There are as many Democrats who have overstayed their welcome in politics as there are Republicans. We also need a new generation of leadership that looks at what's in front of us and looks at the future, which is a challenging future, and tries to determine an intelligent set of policy guidelines that allow us to maintain you know, the dominant position we've had since you know, the post-World War II environment. Right. And as we're recording this, it is two years since Joe Biden took office. And I would say that, yeah, I mean, aside from, I think, a steady hand on the tiller, which was important given the nastiness and the insanity of Trump's four years, you know, on the legislative front, he's been extremely successful, probably, you know, they say maybe since LBJ or FDR, maybe even Eisenhower, who I don't think gets enough credit for his legislative initiatives uh, that basically modernized the country after World War II. And, you know, look, he single handedly saved the Western alliance. And this is now a tenet of my belief, Ron, which is when Russia invaded Ukraine, the European members of NATO looked back across the Atlantic Ocean and they saw Joe Biden and Joe Biden said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And but for that, Russia's probably now into Moldova and we're in an even more dangerous place. Absolutely. Whatever Putin is trying to do, however insane it is, whatever he's trying to accomplish and put back together the remnants of some elements of the Russian empire. If he's trying to create that Russia that was once a global power, 
he is one of the most, along, I think, with President Xi of China, two of the most dangerous people on the planet. And Joe Biden, I think, has steered foreign policy, which was his, by the way, his area of expertise, quite well. And I think to the extent that we have now blunted some of China's ambitions, both from an economic and a military sense, that is process underway. If we indeed defeat Russia in Ukraine, that is going to be a massive victory and will redound for years in keeping Europe and, quite frankly, the North American alliance together for far longer than it might have been otherwise. And I think that's critical. And I don't think people really appreciate the gravity of what's taking place right now and how important it is for the West to win this war. I know. Look, I mean, Russia is basically a giant truck stop gas station. With nuclear <laughs> yeah, weapons, exactly. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what it, it is. Yeah, they've got some wood. They've got some gasoline and oil. And then, you know, short of that, they really don't contribute much to the global economy. And were it not for oil, we wouldn't think twice about Russia as an economic superpower because they're not, right? Italy's bigger and has better food, by the way, just in my humble opinion. And people want to go there. Yeah, I've been to Russia to plenty there, of yeah. times. I don't want to go back. Yeah. And, and so, look, I think on the one hand, someone like Biden, who's had decades of experience and knows all the players, I think to a certain extent was necessary in this environment because you had to repair a lot of relationships. And he's the one who put the North American alliance back together to blunt Russia's impact and is also doing the same with China. What comes next, hopefully would be some enlightened younger leaders. The question is, where are they? Do they step up? And are they successful in thinking through the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years and what all these still to come rapid changes in technology, in, in life cycles, and a whole host of issues facing us, can they adequately address those issues while then also keeping an eye on the risks overseas? You know, sitting behind the Resolute desk right in the world, never been an easy job, not likely to be one anytime soon. Ron and Sana, where can our listeners and viewers today find you and your work online? So obviously I'll be on CNBC in about a little while talking about some of the things we discussed. I am on Twitter at Arinsana. I'm on Facebook. I am on Instagram. I'm there everywhere. I sometimes don't know why, <laughs> but because you take some bullets when you're out there in social media. But listen, I think it's worth using those tools to at least initiate debates that might otherwise not occur. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Ron and Sana, thanks for joining me today. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.